Amen. Well, stand with me, if you will, as we read God's Word together and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. We come today in our ongoing studies through the Bible's first book to a text that troubles many, that puzzles countless. Even scholars would fall in such categories. For example, one I read this week said, We may well wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever pulled a text from this chapter. In other words, wise pastors ought to never preach from Genesis 34. A more recent commentator said the narrative will surely not be widely used in theological exposition. And maybe you hear such comments and you wonder why. Maybe you know why they would say such things. And I do hope we would all discover why such perspectives continue to exist. But we do believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, isn't it? Every sentence, every phrase, every part is useful for us, including passages like this one. That is, in many ways, just another passage in Genesis showing the sinfulness of not only humanity, but even God's people, yet God's constant kindness to His chosen family. So we're going to look at all, 35, or all 31 verses in our study this morning, but to get us started, I just want to read the first seven. First seven gives us really the event that leads to the vengeance that marks the remainder of the passage. And then once I have it read, we'll pray together and ask for God's blessing, and then we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant. And very angry, because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for your help. We ask for the kindness of the Spirit to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this word. That even in the midst of the sin that stains these pages, we would see the truth of your scripture that points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that in looking upon him, we might find life in his name. So help us to hear with earnestness, to receive your word with honesty and humility. For me to preach, as you say, I must with clarity and courage that Christ would be exalted. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. History so often seems to change, to turn, to shift on the smallest of mistakes. Any student of history would know probably countless stories of how this has happened. Let me give you a few. For example, in 1453, when Constantinople fell, that fell in part because simply someone forgot to close one of the city gates on the side through which the Turk army came in and then sacked and plundered that mighty fortress of old. 
and the 1700s, the French Revolution succeeded in part because Marie Antoinette's love of large luxury. When the royal family needed to get out of the royal city, they went into this cumbersome carriage that was so slow that the revolutionaries quickly caught the family and Louis and Marie, they they lost their heads as a result. Or maybe perhaps you know World War I began in part simply because the chauffeur of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, he, he went down the wrong lane. And there happened to be, just right there, a cafe where a radical named Gavrilo Princip, he was seated and he promptly rose and shot the Archduke and his wife. The Middle East was never the same. Europe was never the same. The world was never the same. And we come today to a text in Genesis that seemingly tells us a small mistake on Jacob's part has resulted in history never being the same. Because if you were with us last week, we looked at all of chapter 33, and it was a chapter that told us God made good on his decades prior promise to Jacob that he would bring him back to the promised land. But Jacob did not make good on his decades prior promise to return in the promised land to the place of Bethel. Because look where Jacob stopped short. If you look up to verse 18 of chapter 33, they are told that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. The last time we heard language in Genesis, like he camped before the city was back in Genesis 13, where Lot, set up his tents, and camped before the city of Sodom. And surely, many of us know that did not turn out too well. And here comes Jacob, likewise, stopping short of his promised destination, camping before a sinful city, maybe because it was a place of industry and commerce, therefore it was just a much more comfortable place to live than being just a sojourner all throughout the land. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, Jacob stops only 24 hours short of the promised destination. That seems like a small mistake that leads to what is a tragic text before us in chapter 34. It's a text that shows us yet again in our study of Genesis that God protects His promise God protects his people over and over. In many ways, it's almost the same point of every chapter, isn't it, in Genesis? God is faithful to provide and protect his people. But students, as you come to this text, you want to have a question in the back of your mind. What threat is God protecting his people from? If God's having to, once again, show his arm of strength to protect his people, why is he needing to protect them? Or kids, you might ask a different question. What's God doing in this passage? Because you'll see if you scan all the way through the first 30 or all 31 verses of chapter 34, God's name is not mentioned once. It may seem like the darkness is there because God isn't there. But we do know, of course, that God is working, isn't he? In all situations and circumstances, even when he seems silent, even when he seems absent, God is actually doing something for the good of his people. For the honor of his name. So what is God doing in and through amidst the violation and the vengeance that comes in chapter 33? So have those questions in the back of your mind as we study this passage. The theme of the text, of course, is a scandal in Shechem and it comes in three parts. First, we're going to see Dinah defiled. And then, we're going to see Shechem deceived and Shechem destroyed. 
So first of all, Dinah defiled. Look again at verse 1, chapter 34. We're told, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, she went out to see the women of the land. Now as best we can tell, Dinah is likely somewhere between 14 to 16 years old at this moment. She was Jacob's seventh child and only daughter. His, her mother was Leah, which is quite important for what's getting ready to come. And the language at the end of verse 1 is speaking about someone leaving their tents. She's leaving her household because of the world's attraction, the allure. She wants to see what the, the people of Canaan are like. And so in a way, and perhaps we might be able to understand uniquely in this coronavirus crisis, she wasn't keeping appropriate biblical social distancing guidelines with the Canaanites. Because she was supposed to stay away. And if she was even out on her own at this moment, she wasn't supposed to be on her own. Uh, The customs of the time, uh, the wisdom of the time was that a father should be chaperoning her along the way. But Jacob's not next to her. Brothers aren't next to her. Off she is out wanting to see what the world is like. Some of you might know how common that is, isn't it, for young men and young women. Let us just go see what the world is like. And here we have a text telling us, yet again, parents, isn't it true that faithful parenting means that we, with wisdom, help our children engage the world. We don't, we don't cause them to shrink back in fearful retreat, or we don't cause them to be ensconced due to just kind of complacent carelessness. We want them to be wise as they engage the world. Well, Jacob certainly seems to fall in the latter category, doesn't it? He's altogether absent from Dinah in this moment. Maybe it's complacency, maybe it's carelessness, whatever it is. Look at the tragedy that ensues because Dinah was left alone. Verse 2, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. The language of humiliation is often used in the Old Testament to speak of a girl who brings disgrace upon her name, shame upon her family for sexual relations outside of marriage. But of course, the text is also telling us that this is not something that Dinah has brought upon herself. This is something that Shechem has brought upon Dinah because the text says he seized her. It's actually a word that shows up pretty often in this text that's translated in different ways. It's this language of taking uh, what doesn't belong to him. And in a way that's quite interesting, even in our English passage, the three-verb volley of verse 2 gets a three-verb volley of, frankly, romance in verse 3. Look at what we're told. And Shechem's soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. That, that word there for drawn, it actually shows up in Genesis 2 verse 24 when God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, be drawn to his wife. And it's as though Shechem is forcibly wanting to initiate this kind of one flesh relationship that the Bible says should only happen through the covenant bond of marriage. So earnest is he for Dinah's hand in marriage. You glance down at his command of his father in verse 4. He says, get For me, this girl to be my wife. The language of get is the same word for seize in verse 2. Dad, go seize this girl for me because we must be married, such as Dinah defiled. And in a way that maybe surprises you, the text is mostly about not Dinah's violation, her being violated. 
It's mostly about her brother's retaliation that comes in the remainder of the text. And it begins with him going to Shechem and deceiving him. So we move from Dinah defiled to Shechem deceived. Look at Jacob's response in verse 5. Perhaps we might better say his lack of response in verse 5. He heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. You know, it's hard to say much virtuous about Jacob in this passage. There's, there's ways we can maybe point to virtue in Jacob's example, but it's really hard to kind of pull it out here. Maybe he's just waiting on his sons to come back because they're the ones, according to the custom of the time, that would negotiate the marriage relationship. But surely every godly father, every earnest father, even in this room, would understand if such a thing happened to your daughter, you would feel right, righteous indignation, moral outrage at what happened. Not just sitting on your hands, sitting back and waiting for someone to do something about it. It's hard to know, but I think what's happening here is we're seeing yet again Jacob's favored sin of favoritism rear its head again. Remember, who's Dinah's mother, children? Leah. What Genesis has said is the unloved wife. And in the narrative of Genesis, it seems like Leah's children never get Father Jacob's love and affection. Such kind of emotional intensity that belongs for a beloved wife, Rachel, and her children, Benjamin and Joseph. Because you might know how in just a couple of weeks' time, Lord willing, we'll get to the story of Joseph supposedly being killed. This false report that comes back to Jacob. And you remember what he does? At the outrage over his beloved son, the offense against him, he erupts with emotion, doesn't he? Like Jacob is capable of it. But clearly there he doesn't have any of it. For Dinah, uh, we're told in verse 6, Havor, the father of Shechem, is on the way to come to ask for Dinah's hand in marriage. The brothers of Dinah, Jacob's sons, they hear about it and notice their response because they have one in verse 7. As soon as they heard of it, they were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. You know, students, you might want to circle that word that my ESV has here as indignant. The only other time in the Old Testament, it shows up in the same form as Genesis 6-6, where we're told that God had this immense grief over the depravity of humanity in the years immediately prior to the flood, such as the immense anguish, such as the uh, immense troubled soul that plagues Dinah's brothers in this moment as they are now going to begin to initiate their own scheme to deal with the outrage against their sister. You see in verse 8, Hamor comes along and he says, hey, the soul of my son longs for Dinah. So let us marry with each other, right? Let's unite these two great families. You know, we'll share daughters with you, you share daughters for us, and we'll come this one mighty clan, this one massive tribe. And again, Jacob is silent through the whole exchange. But the brothers have an idea. In verse 13 through 15. I think it, you know, many times throughout my life, I found myself in a hotel room where I was suddenly awakened in the middle of the night by a a fire alarm. And some of you who have spent many nights and evenings maybe traveling have experienced the same. And every time it happened, you know, I would think to myself, do I really want to get out of bed in the middle of the night walk all the way downstairs, walk all the way outside for what is probably a false alarm. 
I don't see smoke. I don't smell fire. Or am I just, you know, put the pillow over my face, cover my ears, and then once the siren is done, I'm just going to go back to sleep because it's a false alarm. And kids, what you need to know is that based on the proposal of verse 8 through 12, there should be this kind of ringing alarm in the ears of God's people. For notice how Shechem concludes the proposal in verse 12. Ask me a great bride price and give as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. So just name the price, Jacob and brothers. However excessive, however exorbitant the price is, I will pay it. Just allow me to marry your sister. What's the alarm bell? Well, you might remember how chapters past the former patriarchs in the faith, Jacob's grandfather and father, Abraham and Isaac, very much concerned that their sons not marry with the Canaanites. Abraham earnest to send off his servant to find a wife for son Isaac from the family. Isaac and Rebekah likewise earnest to get a wife for Jacob, lest he marry the Hittites just as his older twin brother Esau did. And here comes Shechem proposing to intermarry with the chosen covenant child Dinah. And Jacob is quiet. But it seems as though the brothers have taken a play out of Jacob's deceptive playbook. You know, it's true, isn't it, parents, that our children often inherit and even magnify our most personal sins? Because look at what they do in verse 13 through 15. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully, because Shechem had defiled their sister, Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. So you see what the brothers have done. Uh, They've turned God's sacrament into a strategy, using it, wielding it for their own purposes, their own deceitful ends. Perhaps you might even be in here today and you might be using something holy of the Lord for personal purposes, for personal gain. And it's a rather pleasant idea, evidently, to Hamor and Shechem. You'll notice the language of verse 18. The words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. Of course, now they've got to go back to the city of Shechem to be able to convince all the men that they need to get circumcised. And the text tells us that the king of the land, the prince of the land, Hamor and Shechem, they're quite persuasive in their powers because notice what happens in the conclusion of their persuasion. Verse 24, And all went out of the gate of his city, and he listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And surely you notice how the verse is bookended by this language of going out of the gate of his city. It's actually a military phrase. It speaks of all able-bodied and aged men, able to fight war. They're all going outside of the city to do what? Get circumcised. So who's going to protect the city? Who's going to be the soldiers fighting for the mothers and children on the inside of the city? Dinah defiled. Shechem now deceived, which leads at the end of our text to Shechem destroyed. Look at verse 25. On the third day... When they were sore, two, only two, mind you, of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Kind of stopped with a pregnant pause reading the text there last night with the children. 
Because as though he had to pick their jaws up off the ground. They did what? Because it seems as though the brothers aren't only aware of the pain that comes with the anatomy, but also the time period of recovery. Because three days was not only just enough time to make sure all the men of Shechem were circumcised. Three days was normally when the pain of circumcision went at its crippling height. Thus the ease of just two brothers going through and killing every man in the city. Not just that, glance through the next few verses. They plunder the city to the last penny. Such is their retribution, such is their reaction to the outrage committed against their sister. So what is Jacob going to say about this? Jacob hasn't spoken in the passage yet, has he? He speaks, notice, in verse 30. And look at what he says. He says to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Son, don't you know what you've done? They're now going to come against us because of your scheme of revenge. They're going to act a scheme of revenge upon us. Don't you know what's happened? Not really to us. Really to me. Because look at the end of verse 30. And kids, notice the personal pronouns. Jacob's selfishness isn't it altogether apparent. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob speaks. And he certainly doesn't cover himself with any sort of virtue, does he? A patriarch yet again convinced that he seems to be the only one who matters in God's economy of redemption. Well, the sons have a response, don't they? Look at verse 31, the final part of our passage. A rhetorical question to conclude. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You know, I can see Moses, can't you? Because he's the first Presbyterian saying this story, you know, to the nation of Israel, getting to the end of chapter 34, and as it were, closing the book and saying, thus far, the reading of God's Word. And if you stop there, wouldn't you think the text seems to approve of what Simeon and Levi just did? That certainly is the way we ought to take it. But there's more to the story as we're getting ready to see in just a minute. Dinah defiled, Shechem deceived, and destroyed, such as Genesis 34. It was something like 50 years ago that a Swiss historian named Herbert Luthi, he published an influential article that asked the timeless question, what's the point of history? You know, some of you might think back to years past of education and have wondered yourself, what's the point of history? You know, we have a number of children at home, so we have no small number then of children's Bibles and Bible storybooks, and I pulled as many of them out as I could this week, and not a single one had the story of Genesis 34 in it. Because it's probably true, isn't it? For many people, what's the point of a passage like this? Its stain and stench is so great that maybe it's just best to skip over it altogether. So remember, questions we asked at the beginning. What is God protecting his people from? What is God doing in a passage where his name is not even mentioned? Well, let's see if we can answer that with three simple things as we begin to conclude. Number one, God protects his people's holiness. God protects his people's holiness. Go back to verse 16. 
as the brothers are negotiating with Hamor and Shechem, look at what they say in verse 16. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will become, or we will dwell with you and become one people. Skip down to verse 22. Persuasive power of the men of Shechem says the exact same thing. Only on this condition will Jacob's family agree to dwell with us to become what? One people. Last time Genesis spoke about one people was all the way back in Genesis 11 when the world was but one people before the scattering of the nations at Babel. What's the great concern in part of the passage is the danger of God's people intermarrying with the pagan Canaanites in the land when he has said they are to be a distinct people, they are to be a separate people, they are to be a holy people because if Jacob's family goes and intermarries with Shechem's city, God's people will become one people with that city. God's people will cease to become a holy people altogether. And so what God is doing is what? Protecting his people's holiness. He's chosen them to be a royal priesthood. He's chosen them to be a holy nation that they might bring blessing to all the nations. And in order to do that, he has to protect their holiness. Number, number two, God shows his providence. God shows his providence. He's not mentioned in the text, is he? But you do know he's there. It's often true in your life, isn't it? He doesn't seem to be present. But you know he's there, working all things together for your good. And what Genesis keeps telling us is that human deceit can't thwart God's promise. Human sin can't thwart God's promise. God tends to often work even through the sin of his people to bring about his promise. And that's always meant to be something that brings you incredible comfort and encouragement. You might look out on the world right now and think, how can God ever bring good from this? But he has always done it. As far back as Genesis 34, the darkest nights, the hardest situations, God is always in them, even though he may be silent, working for his purposes to come to pass. So he protects his people's holiness. He shows his providence. The third thing that you need to see is God advances the inheritance. God advances the inheritance. And that is the point that's so often missed in Genesis 34. Here's why I say that. Flip ahead to Genesis 49. I told you there was more to the story on the verdict regarding Simeon and Levi's action and retribution. Genesis 49, Jacob is basically on his deathbed and he, in the spirit, is uttering prophecies and proclamations regarding each of his sons. And look at what he says about Simeon and Levi in verse 5 through 7 of chapter 49. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, do not be joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now again, you might say, what's the point? Inheritance, advancing, what does that mean? Well, of course, in the ancient world, who got the blessedness of the inheritance? The firstborn. Right? Well, we're going to see, Lord willing, next week, chapter 35, how Reuben forfeited his inheritance and its blessedness. He's the oldest. Who's next in line? Simeon and Levi. They just forfeited here in Genesis 34. So who's the fourth in line? Judah. 
And don't you know that it's from the tribe of Judah that the Lion of Judah comes? This is a chapter here to help us understand how it even got to a point that God had chosen Judah to be the one from whom the king of kings would come. Because, of course, what we're seeing in this passage, firstborn sons forfeiting their inheritance through their violence. Yet, the true firstborn son, Jesus Christ, would come and secure the inheritance because violence was done to him. Firstborn sons forfeiting the inheritance because of their sinful vengeance. The true firstborn son, Jesus Christ, coming And guaranteeing you an everlasting inheritance. Because he willingly, lovingly and sacrificially found vengeance fall upon him that your sin deserves. So what's the point of the scandal in Shechem? Well, God always protects his people's holiness. God is always working providentially for the good of his people. The faithfulness of his promises. And God indeed is, in surprising and stunning ways, advancing the inheritance To get it to the point where our Lord Jesus Christ will secure it for us forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would comfort us in the truths of our text. That even in times of your apparent silence and absence, we would remember that you are with us. That your spirit is within us. To help us walk in holiness and faith and likeness before you. Fill us, we pray, with that very spirit that is a down payment of our inheritance. That we might indeed walk in great trust towards you this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us rise as we want to sing our